Warnings, warnings, warnings. The Bible is full of them, but what are we most often warned against? Sin? Unbelievers? Hell? The devil? Demons? What if I told you there's something far more insidious and dangerous that is far more often mentioned in the Bible that we need to be careful about, and yet so many Christians ignorantly participate in it again and again? We're going to talk about that today on The Deep Dive. Hey everybody, my name is Tim and welcome into the Deep Dive Season 5, Episode 32. I cannot believe it, but here we are at the end of the Book of Romans. It's like, oh, a great, wonderful season of life is coming to an end. Have you enjoyed the study through the Book of Romans? I have immensely enjoyed it. I trust it has deepened your faith. I trust it has strengthened your love for God and the gospel. I pray also that what you have learned sticks with you. And uh, if you need to go back through it again, I recommend that. This book, we have kind of touched on it, I would say six feet deep, but the dip, the book, you could go a thousand feet deep. You can never plumb the total depths of God's amazing word. Hey, all I ask for on this episode, lastly, is a like, a share, or a subscribe. If you would do that for me uh, at your earlier conven- earliest convenience, I would be tremendously Lucky to have that from you guys, and I want to pray as we get into Romans chapter 16, the last few verses of this incredible book, and uh, we'll close out the season. Father, thank you for your word. May it speak to us, and may it heal us, shape us, challenge us, confront us, transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans, written by Paul the Apostle, (laughs) to the church in Rome, and we are here studying it in 2022. It's just uh, quite amazing when you think about how powerful the Bible is, how long it's been around, and how these ancient words are so true and impactful today. It's just a testimony to the fact that when we open the Word of God, we do not open the words of men. We open the words that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God through these men to instruct the church for all time until Jesus Christ comes. Again, we're going to get into what it meant. So picking up on Romans chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Look at that word right there. To watch out. Watch out for what? For those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then these last two words, we're going to deal with these heavily in a moment. Avoid them. So this is Paul's final admonition to the church in Rome, and he ends with a warning. And the warning is about who? About what? About the devil? About demons? About uh, sin? No, the, the warning is about those who would take them away from truth. And that those people are among them, because that's why he says you need to avoid them. Like you think about all the things that Christians get so worked up about, right? We get worked up about um, what pagan culture is doing or what nasty unbelievers are doing. And, and unbelievers are going to be unbelievers. We should be aware of what they're doing, but they're no threat to us. Honestly, they're no threat to us. They can't take us out of the kingdom. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If we leave... The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to follow pagans. We never really truly received the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And yet Christians seem more upset about what unbelievers are doing than what false believers are doing. Those who cause divisions, those who create obstacles, two things he says that uh, these people you need to watch out for do. They, they are false believers. By the way, oh, uh, Paul regularly ends his letters with warnings like 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Galatians 6, 12, Philippians 3, uh, all the way into uh, chapter 4. He regularly finishes off with warnings because I think what he's saying is I've unpacked all this truth for you. Now be careful that no one steals it from you. So two things that you've got to watch out for. Those who cause divisions in the church, when someone comes in and they start to badmouth the pastor, badmouth the leaders, badmouth the the church, you know, these people, they sneak in and And there's a reason, there's a motivation behind it we're going to get to in the next verse, but they don't support the church, they're critiquing the church. They they call themselves, you know, true prophets sometimes. They call themselves, well, I just have the spirit of discernment. No, you have the spirit of division. And and I'm not not, um, saying that we have to accept all pastors uh, without without discernment. We, We should 
ask ourselves the question, is the pastor teaching me what's in the scriptures? Is the pastor opening the Bible? Is the pastor reading it and telling me what it says? Like that's, that's the test, right? Uh, beyond the test for the pastor's lifestyle. But nonetheless, there are people who, no matter how biblical the church is, no matter how strong the teaching is, there are still going to be people in the church who undermine the leadership and undermine the truth of God's word by doing something very um, suspicious, very in, unconscionable, in my opinion, because you you didn't actually care for the sheep. You just want to look important, okay? And then he says these next words, he says that they create obstacles. Look at that. They create obstacles. And the word here for obstacles is skandala in Greek. And it's the word that we get scandal from. So these are the people who create scandals. They create scandals that don't exist. Oh, and and, and you've got to be aware of this. You've got to pay attention to this. They say things like, oh, did you hear? Or they say things like this. Well, I've heard from a lot of people that uh, or they say things like, well, I, I just have that kind of spirit that I can just tell. I can just see. And, and then they, they spiritualize it. Well, I'm just praying for them. Or, you know, I'm just concerned with the direction. Or I, I just think that, the, you know, the church has kind of lost a little bit. And I'm not saying anything negative, but, but there's a little bit of a, you, they're drifting. And they always seem like they are so spiritual because they cake it. They put the frosting of spirituality on top of this crap cake that they have baked into the church. And they are false believers. They create divisions. They cause people to avoid or turn away from the gospel. They do this in two ways. The first way that they do this is they eliminate the need for true Christian discipleship by making a Christianity that is more focused on the routine event of the weekend. It's all about their uh, the presentation, all about just d going through the motions and looking a certain way or acting a certain way. The other way they do this is that they elevate outward conformity to rule uh, to rules that put us at the center of our own sanctification. Like they create this very rigid form of Christianity. Um, and, and these are the two poles, and we're going to get to them in just a moment because they lead to legalism and relativism. But there are so many people that come in and do this, that Paul had to repeatedly, repeatedly warn the church against the people who would take and twist spirituality to divide the church. And 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 so a couple of texts that prove me here and, and shows you how often Paul had to warn the church and Christ himself did as well. Uh, he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And then look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Again, the phrase there, have nothing to do with them. In other words, avoid them. Don't hang out with them. Don't pray for them. Don't care for them. Don't minister to them. Get away from them that they may be ashamed, he says. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In other words, there should be people, Christian, who are on your avoid them list. And I want to say that again because you're not going to get it. And no matter how many times I say it, some people just still don't get it. There should be professing, professing Christians that you have on an avoid them list. Because they don't have in mind the heart of God. They don't have in mind the benefit of the church, the unity of the church. They have in mind their own selfish ambitions or their own self-centered version of spirituality where it's all about them looking smart and important. You have to have this level of discernment about the false brothers more now than ever before. You think about how Paul had to write these letters to get out this warning and, and truth. But today, anybody can start a Twitter feed. Anybody can start a YouTube channel. Anybody can start a church. Um, there is such a disillusion of hierarchical authority in the global church that almost anybody can confess themselves a professional guru and draw a great crowd of witnesses around them, a great crowd of people around them to, you know, just kind of make them look important instead of feeding God's sheep and telling people what God's word says. You have to watch out too for pastors who make themselves the center and not Jesus the center. Uh, pastors who refuse to ever hand over the pulpit to other preachers. Pastors who make their church all about them. I remember there was a great pastor, he was a great pastor up until the truth came out about him, that had these this enormous church with several locations in the state of Florida. He was very well known, very popular, a great speaker. I went to his church and I literally showed up at his church about a week before all the news broke about his years and years and years of pornography and adultery, active pornography and active adultery. 
I went into the church a week before all that broke. Nobody knew it was going to happen. I didn't know it was going to happen. And in the church lobby, I looked to my left, I looked to my right, and there was these two huge photos of him in the church lobby with a Bible in his hand like this. And it was just, the message was very clear. This church is about him. This church is not about Christ. This church is about him. And when we do that, we set up a man for failure because no man is your savior outside of Jesus Christ. No pastor is your ultimate Lord and God, okay? I I always get uh, very cautious around people who (laughs) they they idolize me, and I don't even have that big of a church. I have a a sizable church, but people get overwhelmed by my presence, and I'm like, look, I am just a tool. I actually had to say that to somebody this Sunday. I am just a tool in the hand of the master, and I thank you for appreciating me as the tool, but he's the one using me, and I want you to tie your faith to him. Watch out for people who draw draw people to themselves. They come across very spiritual. They come across very mature. They come across very concerned for the church, but inwardly they desire to create divisions. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 26, he says this, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. And look at this last line, danger from false brothers. Like Paul puts on the same line, danger at sea to danger from false brothers. That's how dangerous they are. And what I have found is that there are very few pastors willing to talk about this danger. Last week, I brought up Andy Stanley's propensity, on the deep end anyway, Andy Stanley's propensity to say these very controversial things and then backtrack them theologically by going right back to supporting the very thing that he broke down in the first place. Like when he talks about the fact that the Christian faith is not founded or grounded or centered on, what was it? The church, the church, the Christian faith is not find its substantiation in the accuracy of the 66 books, the 66 books of the Bible, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And then I said, but this is circular reasoning because you don't have an accurate picture of the person of Jesus Christ without the 66 books, 66 books being accurate. So if the 66 books aren't accurate, then the Jesus in those books is not accurate. And anyway, then he spends the whole message talking about how we can trust the 66 books of the Bible to give us an accurate picture of Jesus. So circular reasoning, it sounds highfalutin, it sounds high-minded, it sounds very progressive, almost as bait and switch for people who want to deconstruct the Christian faith or the Orthodox faith and then kind of circle back around and accept it again. I don't like that. It's smooth-sounding arguments, it's cleverness of speech, which Paul, which Paul rejected. And We really just need to open God's word and tell people what it says and let the chips fall where they may. I'm not against decorating the sermon, telling jokes. I love to tell jokes in sermons because I'm a person who loves humor. Every show that I watch is just comedy. I love humor. That's my personality. Now, there are preachers who are very, very serious and their personality comes through the teaching. The personality of the preacher is irrelevant. It's are they unpacking scripture? Are they teaching you what Scripture says? That's why I do the deep dive, where we go verse by verse, very slowly through the Scriptures to show you Jesus on every page. And I found that very few pastors want to call out the danger of false teachers, the the, the danger of drifting away from Orthodox Christian faith and Orthodox biblical leadership. And there are many, many popular teachers out there leading God's people away from Christ, leading God's people into self-serving, what I call therapeutic ideology. Therapeutic meaning that it's all about you feeling good. It's all about you imagining yourself to be better. It's all about, you know, it's basically pop psychology with a Christian stamp on it. It's Dr. Phil uh, plus Oprah Winfrey plus a little bit of Jesus Christ. And it is. It feels good. It sounds good. It's very attractive because we are a very me-centered culture. We are a very feelings-centered culture. But it's not biblical. It's not godly. Jesus did not care about everybody's feelings as he drove out the money changers. Jesus did not care about the feelings of the followers of the Pharisees and scribes as he called them sons of hell, as he, as he rebuked them repeatedly in Matthew 23. And Paul talked about, we talked about this a few weeks ago, had to hand Two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme. There are times in the bio, in the in the Christian faith where leaders have to be shepherds who drive away, expose and drive away the wolves among them. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We could also say feelings here. Uh, these are the feeling preachers. Again, they, this is a growing trend in the Christian church. 
Tell me what makes me feel good. Tell me about how I can accomplish my dreams. I can become whatever I want. Nothing can get in my way. No one's ever going to stop me. Like this is, again, we put us in the center and not Christ in the center. We put our ideals and dreams and passions in the center and not sanctification. God is not concerned about your dreams nearly as much as he's concerned about your discipleship. God is not concerned about your passions nearly as much as he's concerned about your purity. God is not concerned nearly as much about your success as he is about your sanctification. He wants you shaped into the image of Jesus Christ through your ups, through your downs, through your wars, through your peacetime seasons, through your good relationships, bad relationships, through your challenges and your difficulties and your testings and your seasons of wilderness wandering and fiery, fiery testing. God wants to shape you into the person of Jesus Christ so that he, as Romans chapter 8 says, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So they will gather on themselves teachers who will suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. This word mythos uh, refers to legendary stories or accounts about supernatural events or beings. Uh, I always get leery of those people who produce those books. I went to, I died and went to heaven and came back and here's what I saw. I get leery of those books because they sell tremendously well. And then it becomes this kind of niche um, product on, you know, Christian, uh, booksellers' websites or on Amazon, then, then these people get asked on to interviews for popular shows and they do the speaking tours and, and sometimes their reflections of what they see in heaven conflict. Uh, but yet it, is, it appeals to that itch for the supernatural that we want to feel something and experience something that's beyond this life. Look, we, I get that. We do. We want to experience something that is transcendent. But that feeling will also always never be fulfilled this side of heaven. That itch for the transcendent is the body groaning to be released from his bondage to decay and to be adopted into the sun of light. That, that, that we, we itch and long for the new age to come in, to be ushered in at the return of Christ. And so some people appeal to that itch by producing these mythological accounts that draw you away from discipleship, sanctification, purity, the things that actually count in the record of heaven. Then again, Paul, at the end of 1 Timothy, talks about this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, this is Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. Watch out for people, he says, who love to fight. They love to debate. They love to get into arguments. They love to get into arguments about um, dispensationalism and uh, or uh, uh, predestination or Armenian and Calvinism or baptism of infants, baptism of adults or the end times views and premillennialism, pre-tribulationalism or whatever. They love to debate. That's all. The, and I love a good, strong, healthy, friendly debate about things that we can debate about. But there are some people that that's all that they want. They just want to quarrel about words. They just want to nitpick on little issues instead of seeing discipleship take place in the church. It says this, it produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There is an underlying motivation behind these people that we are called to avoid. There is an underlying motivation. And, and I love the fact, by the way, again, back in Romans 16, 17, he says, avoid them. The people who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. Not, I'm feeling bad that they might be disconnected from the church since leaving, so let me reach out to them. No, avoid them. Not, I, I'm not sure what to believe, the pastor or them, so I like to stay connected to both. No, avoid them. Not, I want to help them. I want to minister to them. I want to reach out to them. No, avoid them. Well, what about loving them? Love them by avoiding them and letting Satan handle them. Satan is God's tool. He will discipline them through through handing them over to Satan. Or, or people commonly say this, well, I like to find the good in people. Well, then you haven't read the Bible at all because there's nothing good in people. There could be the residue of the image of God on people that looks good on the outside, but you don't even know the ulterior motivations on the inside. There is nothing good in me, Paul says in the book of Romans. So you've got to avoid. There, who is on your avoid list? Who is on your avoid them list? And you say, I don't have one. 
well, you are setting yourself up for a world of hurt and confusion because here's the motivation. Now, finally, we're going to get to the next verse. The ulterior motivation, the underneath the surface motivation for such people. He says this in verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own, what? Appetites, their own desires. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In other words, they know how to draw people to themselves. Can I just say this very clearly? There are some preachers, and they're on YouTube, and they're on television, and they're all over the world. They don't know how to build the church. They know how to build a crowd. They know how to gather people around their philosophies or their way of speaking. And ultimately, it's not about Jesus. It's about themselves because they have an appetite to draw an audience wherein they can celebrate it. I uh, am in the evangelical subculture of our country, and it drives me nuts. I can't stand it, to be honest with you. There is a, a, a magazine called Outreach Magazine, and they always have the top 100 fastest growing churches in America. I, I never want to be on that list. I never want to be on that list. Even if our church was the fastest growing or one of the 100 fastest growing churches, I would never want to be on that list because who cares? You can gather a crowd, but only Christ can change a heart. <laughs> you know who comes to Christ in our church? Those whom God has called to himself. And he is using my less than, less than uh, perfect means, me, less than perfect. Uh, he is using me to accomplish his purpose to save his people. I am a tool. I am just one tool amongst many. Now, let's get into this again, because I want to talk to you about what those obstacles are that, that, that pull you away from the gospel, the book of Romans, all about the gospel. And now there are two poles, two polar extremes that bring you away from the gospel. Let's take a look at them. Uh, Paul has addressed them in almost every book of the Bible that he wrote, and I want to show you them on the screen here. There are two extremes, relativistic Christianity and legalistic Christianity. These are the two scandalas, or if you will, the obstacles of true biblical Christianity. The gospel is right down the center. The gospel is right down the center. Here, here's what I mean. Relativistic Christianity. These are the people who say, you know what? Uh, Christ will forgive me. I can do whatever I want. Or, you know, it's not really about truth. It's about love. Like I call it the, the truth, the love, not truth crowd. I can't stand this. It's not really about truth. It's not really about rules. It's not really about law. It's about love. Love, 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 love. These are the, the, the John Lennon Christians. They're, everything is about love. And no, uh, true love has rules. True love has boundaries. True love says enough is enough. True love says I know this is going to kill you or destroy you, so I want you to stay away from it, and if necessary, I will rip you from it. So relativistic Christianity pulls you away from the gospel because you no longer worry about transforming, changing your attitude, your actions, your behavior. No, it's about your feeling, feeling, feelings. I want to feel loved. I want to feel accepted. I want to feel appreciated. I want to feel valued. Well, yes, God can give you uh, value, feeling, love, but to respond to that love, is to obey his commandments. Jesus says, you love me if you will keep my commandments. We know we have crossed from death to life, First John says, if we obey his commandments. Like There are things we must do as Christians because we are Christians. The other opposite extreme is legalistic Christianity. And this draws us away from Christ because legalistic Christianity is when it's all about rules and all about that law. Like, And usually the laws go beyond the clear teachings of scripture or the heart of the Holy Spirit concerning your behavior, and they become outward conformities in the back in the old days, wearing a tie, dressing up for church, uh, women wearing uh, skirts or dresses, not pants, you know, men having certain haircuts and uh, no tattoos and no whatever else, uh, legalistic outward conformity. Don't listen to rock music. Don't go to rated R movies, legalistic outward conformity, things that you can do that are based on man-made traditions and not necessarily come from a heart of obedience that you want to love God and please God. Look, there are some movies you shouldn't watch. There are some shows that are garbage. There are some things you should not put on your body or in your body. But does it come from a love for God or does it come from this desire to look important and look good in front of other Christians? There is a big difference between those two things. And so legalistic Christianity is rooted on the, you know, the idea of the in crowd. These are the people who can really 
obey the rules they're the really good people and then those other people they're the real bad sinners because they don't do the outward conformity things that we all do does that make sense i hope this is making sense these are the things that can draw you away from christ christ is the end of the law for righteousness yes but he calls us to serve god in the truest sense of the law the higher level of law a law that obeys god from the heart and that we go we go to those extremes of the law now that we, we don't obey the letter of the law we obey the heart of the law the moral law that is and ultimately the heart of the moral law is fulfilled in what loving god with all your heart soul mind and strength and loving your neighbor as you love yourself so watch out warnings warnings he's saying against false believers who will take you away from the truth and the simplicity of the gospel. Let's move on to verse 19. It says this, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you. Now look at this. He says, I know you're obeying. I know you're doing well. But I still want you to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So wise as to what is good. Now let's talk about that for a second. Are you growing in what is good? And then... Secondly, conversely, or parallel in line with that, are you growing more and more innocent as to what is evil? Like, I am really shocked on a re repeated basis at the number of television shows that I get recommended by professing Christians. And I go to the television show and I watch it and it's filled with filth. And I think, why did these people, <laughs> why did these professing Christians think that a pastor would want to watch this filth? I don't want to watch it. I don't want to expose my, my home my family and my own eyes to filth. I just, you've got to have an innocence toward this stuff. Secondly, the Christians who love gossip, they love to hear the no. They want to be in on the no and they will cloak this idea with prayers. Oh, we're just praying for them. No, you're probably gossiping. You know, you just want to know everybody else's issues because you love it. It's like a juicy morsel as the book of Proverbs says. Um, and I, I don't want to know. Like this, some people, they want to know everything about everybody. I, I tell people on a regular basis, I don't want to know. I don't want to know what's going on with a person's life unless they're asking for my help. Like unless they need my help, then, then tell me how I can help. But some people take more delight in knowing what's wrong with people than in helping fix what's wrong with people. And that's called just an unhealthy obsession with gossip and slander and busybodiness, right? So be wise as to what is good, growing in the knowledge of the truth, growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Well, how do we do that? How do we grow in the knowledge of what is good? Well, first off, we understand that only God is good, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 6. And look at what it says here in Jeremiah 4.22. He says, for my people are foolish. That's a, that's a high indictment right there. My people are foolish. Well, why? They don't know me. They know me not, he says. You want to be a fool? Don't know God. You don't, want to, you don't want to know stuff? Don't know God. Okay, he says they are stupid children. They have no understanding. He says they, they are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. Wisdom, listen to this very carefully, is knowing the Lord. That's why Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John 17. He says this is eternal life that they might know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, Jesus says. What? That they might know you. You want eternal life? It's about knowing Christ. I said kind of flippantly to my church on Sunday. I said, look, if you don't love Jesus in this life, hell's going to be miserable for you. I mean, I'm sorry, heaven's going to be miserable for you. If you don't love Jesus now, you will hate him in heaven because heaven is about knowing Christ. Heaven is about on, uh, embracing and reveling in and worshiping and celebrating the glory of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Now, I don't fall into that trap of that heaven is just an eternal worship service, um, but everything, we know all things uh, only truly through Jesus Christ who made all things, right? He is not all things, but he made all things. And so to know our world is to know the one who made it, to understand how the creation works, how my body should work, how my mind should work, is to know the one who made it. As Hebrews says, that he holds all things together through the word of his power. You're being held together through the word of Jesus Christ. And he is the word of God. And so how do we know Jesus Christ? Through studying the word of God and the scriptures that testify to Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, Luke chapter 24. When we study God's word, we study the God's word to know not ourselves alone, but Jesus Christ who changes us into his image. And lastly, the old preacher illustration goes like this. Federal 
uh, agents who specialize in identifying counterfeit bills hone their craft not by studying counterfeits, but by studying the real thing. It's an old preacher illustration. They spend time after time after time, hour after hour after hour, studying true bills. That way, when they see a fake, they will spot it immediately. And that's what I would say to you. Are you growing the knowledge of Jesus Christ through the word so that you can spot the fakes and spot false Christianity quickly and not be led astray by it? And, and so he says this last line too, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have peace with God now, but we still have a battle with Satan today. And by the way, this is going to be ultimately fulfilled at the return of Christ who has already put Satan under his feet. As Genesis 3.15 prophesied, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Whose offspring? The devil's offspring. That's what your is there. The devil's offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's the cross. So the devil did bruise. Um, I'm sorry. He shall bruise his heel. But he, that's Jesus, shall bruise the devil's head. He crushed the devil's head. That great scene in the Passion of the Christ when Jesus is praying in the garden and the snake comes, slitters up under his garments there. And he stands up and he stamps on it. It was a, it was a wonderful little picture of uh, Mel Gibson being very aware of Genesis 3.15 and the first reference to the gospel, uh, what, uh, what uh, theologians call the proto-evangelon of Scripture, Genesis 3.15, that, that though the devil would bruise the heel of Christ, ultimately Christ would crush the head of the devil. So that is coming. Now, Moving on in uh, chapter 16, he says in verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greets you. Um, again, Paul is naming names, as we said last week. But right now what he's doing is he's naming the names that travel with him. Uh, the Lucius is perhaps one of the prophets and teachers at the church in Antioch that originally sent Paul and Barnabas out on evangelistic missions. Or he could be Luke the evangelist. Another name for Luke is Lucius. Uh, we could talk about Jason here, uh, the same person that gave Paul shelter during the riot that took place in Thessalonica. So Sopater, uh, or Sopater in other translations, uh, the name of a man from Berea that accompanied Paul when he left Greece, Tertius, who wrote down a letter. These are common uh, ways of dictating. Usually letters were dictated to uh, writers, amanuciuses in the ancient world. So Paul has a team of people. Gaius, a wealthy Christian from Corinth. Erastus, um, the treasurer of the city, could possibly be the director of public works in the city. But most notably, he talks about Timothy, my fellow worker. And uh, we got to talk about Paul's relationship with Timothy for a moment. Paul refers to Timothy in 1 Timothy um, as my true son of the faith. He refers to him as my dear son in 2 Timothy. This is an important point. Paul was investing not just in the church at large in Rome, but he also had one-on-one -on -one discipleship with other Christians. And what an important question for us modern Christians today. We go to big gatherings today. We, we're, we're very good at gathering crowds, gathering people together in a room where we talk about Jesus. But what about those one-on-one -on -one moments? What about that training up? Who is your Timothy? Who is your person that you are reaching out to personally, to disciple, to bring along in the faith, to become a spiritual father or mother too? Uh, can you name someone like that? Maybe you're new to the faith. You, uh, you get a pass here. But those of you who have been long in the faith, you know, at some point, Christians, listen, this is going to sound a little bit corrective, but maybe it needs to be. At some point, it's got to stop being about you just growing in knowledge of the Lord and it has to turn to you pouring into someone else. Who are you leading? Who are you guiding? Who are you raising up in the faith? What an important point here from a final greeting from the Apostle Paul. Okay, the last words of Romans chapter 6, uh, Romans, the, the book of Romans, it says this, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Wow, that's, that's one heck of a doxology. Paul ends this letter with praise and worship to God, who is able to strengthen you right? According to the gospel. We get strong in God when we get strong according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You got to learn to receive preaching. Look, you're hearing it right now. You've got to prioritize it. You got to put it in you. 
You got to be wise in what is good, right? And 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 then he says the mystery that was kept secret, the mysterion in Greek. This is something that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter two regularly. The mystery, the mystery from ages past now disclosed is this: that through the Jewish nation, the true Jew Jesus Christ, God would bring back together the nations that had been scattered at the Tower of Babel. That through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, God the Son would die, would render Himself asunder, so that all of his people from all nations could come together under the lordship of himself. That the barriers of nations, the barriers of ethnicities, the barriers and the walls of division that mankind has set up historically all come crumbling down through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and through him, that wall of hostility, as he talks about again in Ephesians chapter 2, is destroyed and one new people from amongst all the tribes and nations come together and worship him. And at the end of the day, the only response to true to the only true response to truth is worship. This is why our church will end our services with a worship song. Once we have received God's truth, we worship him. We say, thank you, God. We receive it. That's what Paul's doing here in, in chapter 16. He's giving us praise and worship. He's leading us to say, celebrate him to, to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Can I tell you, you've got to learn to worship God. You've got to participate in worship. And I'm talking about audible worship. A lot of people think they'll just go to church, fold their arms, and watch the people on stage sing. That's not entering into worship. That's being a spectator. Enter into worship. Praise him. Worship him. Celebrate him. Because there's so much to celebrate. Let's talk about what it means. All right, so what will all this mean? Here we go. Will we follow the warnings of Scripture? Like this, I ask this sincerely because I wonder for many Christians, if they are even aware that many times, many times they are entering, or I'm sorry, entertaining false teachers and, and uh, developing relationships with false brothers. <laughs> avoid them, Paul says. A- avoid people who undermine the teachings of the word of God in your church. Avoid people who live questionable lifestyles and then claim to be Christians. Avoid people who draw you to themselves and not to Christ. Remember this, church. Satan traffics in division. He traffics in division. He divided the angels in heaven. Then he came to Eden and divided the woman from the man. After Eden and the fall, he divided brothers, Cain and Abel. When the the people of Israel came out of Egypt, He sent some rabble from amongst the Egyptians with them, and they undermined Moses, and they divided the people. You've got to be aware that there are always, this is so important. I hope hope that you will listen. (laughs) There are always false brothers and sisters within the room where you gather on Sunday. And that is true for my church. It's true for your church. It was true for Jesus' church. A false brother walked with Jesus for three years. Now, he wasn't caught off guard. He knew exactly who he was. In fact, he was even instructed by the Father to choose him because it would all set up the fulfillment of Scripture that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He was aware of who he was, but none of the other 11 disciples knew. False brothers are always going to be there when they show you their true colors. That is, by undermining the authority of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God in your church, the leadership of the church, and drawing you to themselves with smooth talk and flattery, and drawing you into relativistic Christianity or legalistic Christianity, you've got to get away from them. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen it so many times. People who are either asked to leave the church or they eventually leave the church on their own. And, and, and true believers will say, whatever happened to them? And they'll say, oh, I have a heart for them. Oh, I just want to make sure that they're okay. They're fine. They'll be fine. And if they're not fine, Maybe that's what the Lord wants for them right now. Honestly, focus on the people who love the Lord and want to obey him. It's amazing through social media too. You can clearly see things on social media of what people are entertaining in their lives and they call themselves Christians and they undermine leadership or they left or they divided the church and you have questions about whether or not you should be in a relationship with them. In my opinion, there is no question. Avoid them. This is the one person, the one person we're called to avoid. Not unbelievers. You know that famous text that we use to talk about 
Um, bad company. First Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. Do you know who he's talking about right before he says bad company corrupts good character? He's talking about people in the church in Corinth who denied that the resurrection was going to happen. False brothers. <laughs> oh, I just, I hope you're getting it because so many Christians are so oblivious to this and then their faith is wrecked by keeping tabs with people who do not submit to the authority of the word and the authority of the church. As Paul Peter says in 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. Note the promise. There will be teachers among you. Jesus said, false teachers among you. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit um by the way note there that the whole we recognize them by their fruits is not about christians who are struggling with sin <laughs> uh we do this all the time too we see somebody struggling with sin we say oh not a real christian well, no, no no he's struggling with sin it's a difference we're not supposed to be a fruit inspector for people who are struggling with sin some people go back to the old lifestyle but they hate it they need love and support. They need people to come alongside them. And you say, well, how do I know the difference between someone who's backslidden into the old life because of, even though they hate it and the person who is engaging in it and has no, uh, uh, no repentance about it? Well, you can gauge it fairly easy by just asking them a few questions. Uh, is this something that you're okay with or is this something that you're struggling with? That's I mean, a simple question. Right, And then, again, this recognize them by the fruits line that Jesus uses and we use to attack struggling Christians. Jesus uses it to identify false and ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets. Do not consider yourself the fruit inspector of every Christian. Some Christians have to wrestle with the same sin for, gen for, for decades, and then they hate it and they want it gone. Even Paul the Apostle in Romans 7, that which I hate I keep doing and that good that I want to do, this I do not do. This is the struggle of a, of a very sincere Christian. But we have to watch out and have discernment in the Holy Spirit for the insincere among us. And they always will be there. Fundamentally too, let me give you a hot pro tip as a Christian. Are you ready? When we hear truth, the enemy immediately seeks to remove it. This has been the enemy's role since the Garden of Eden. God gave the truth to Adam and immediately goes to the woman and tries to steal the truth from her. Remember that great parable of the soils in Matthew 13? Jesus says there's four types of soils, the, the good, the, the, the rocky, the thorny, and then the path. The first one's the path. And it says that the, the, the sower goes out to sow seed. Some falls along the path. And then the birds of the air come and snatch it up. This is in Matthew 13. And the disciples are like, what is this about? And he says, well, here, here are the message of the parable. Uh, the word, the seed is the word. Um, when the word is sown, uh, some people come, they don't understand it. And they immediately afterwards, the, 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 the birds are the devil. And they come and they snatch away. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown. This is what the devil does constantly. And I bring this up because Paul ends the book of Romans with a warning. I've taught you the truth. Don't let anybody steal it from you. I've taught you the gospel. Don't depart from it because understand that the devil will try to steal the word away from you. That's why this great principle that, Paul, that Jesus unpacks in Matthew 13 is so apropos to us today. He says in Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them to you. It has been given the, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What is, Paul, what, what is Jesus talking about here? For, to the one who has, has what? Has truth. If you receive truth and, and believe it, guess what? The promise is more will be given. More truth will be given to you when you receive it. And you will have, <clears throat> sorry, you have an abundance of truth. But from the one who does not have it. In other words, you, you hear truth, but you don't receive it. You don't believe it. Even what you have will be taken away. That is why every time we hear the, the truth of Scripture, we are accountable. Will we receive it with childlike faith and trust that is the living word of God, or, we will deny, or will we deny it and question it? 
If we don't receive it, we lose it. If we don't believe it, we do not open ourselves up more to it. That's why the scripture says in Proverbs, the unfolding of your word brings light and revelation. The unfolding. And I say this all the time. The, the word of God is like a gift. And you first unwrap the Christmas wrap or the present wrap. And then you unfold the box. And each step gets you closer and closer to what's in the box. And that is the word of God. You have to continue to search it, unfold it, let it come to you, receive it, and you will receive more. So the question is not, the question is not, how much of the book of the, uh, how much of the Bible can I get through? No, the question is how much of the Bible can get through to you? That's the question. How much more do you understand today and receive today than you did yesterday? So ultimately I say this, seek to grow in truth. Please seek to grow in truth and not to dabble in the lies of this age or the gossip of people in the church or, you know, the, the, the uh, therapeutic version of me first Christianity that is, that is saturating our age. We want to know truth. We want to know Christ. And then lastly, we need traveling partners. We need people who are with us, just like Paul had eight people that he mentions by name. Eight. Think about it. Eight people he mentions by name who were with him at the time of this writing. Partners in ministry who will lead us, uh, 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 sorry, help us to walk with Christ. Why does all this matter? Let's talk about that. Well, here we are. This is it. This is the end of season five on the channel. Why does this matter? Why do these warnings matter? Because to believe on Christ is to enter into a battle over truth. And ladies and gentlemen, I can't think of a better way to finish off season five than with then with this line right here, <laughs> to believe on Christ is to enter into a battle over truth. Now, if you're not aware of the battle of truth, you might not be in Christ. But it, when Christ truly takes up residence in your life, when he is truly Lord, you see it. You are suddenly awakened to what's lies and what's truth. And you might not know always what is truth and what is lies, but you want to. There's a, there's a lure, there's an appeal of your heart to the truth. Jesus said, my sheep will follow me. They know my voice, they'll follow me. Not enough Christians realize that there is a battle over truth. I'm shocked. I am repeatedly shocked, although I shouldn't be at this point, at the number of Christians who are not truly Christians. For instance, the number of Christians who are mourning the death of Roe v. Wade. I'm shocked how many Christians cannot read the Bible and see it plain as day that life begins with conception, even as we said yesterday, before conception. Christians got on Twitter and Facebook, Christians, professing Christians, to say that this is not right or to side with those who support destroying life in the womb. I'm shocked at the number of Christians who let church gathering become secondary to their homes and their families, but school and higher education is considered essential. I, I'm, I'm shocked at the number of Christians who want a feel-good, me-first version of this faith rather than true discipleship, sanctification, and purity through the Word of God. We are in a battle over truth. And if you don't see it, it might be because you're still under the auspices of the God of this world. And my appeal to you is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive Him as Lord, and let Him, not you, or your favorite politician, or your personal preference, and heaven forbid, your feelings. Call the shots in your life. Let Jesus, not let, <laughs> identify Jesus as Lord of your life. So three final questions. Number one, am I receiving and honoring truth in my life? Am I receiving it? Am I believing it with childlike faith? Am I fighting against the battles uh, am I fighting against the lies of my age? And every age has different lies, and we've talked about those ad nauseum on this channel. But number three, do I have fighting partners with me? In other words, do I got a crew that I can pray with, that I can grow with? If you're in a large church, you need a small group. If you're one of these so-called maverick Christians, you know, podcast, worship song, listening Christians, it's time to get into a body of believers who can fight with you and for you. 
And together, you can grow into all things Christ Jesus. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the season. That is the end of Deep End Deep Dive Season 5. Sad, isn't it? Please like the video or share it. And if you haven't already, subscribe. We just hit 2,000 subscribers and the channel is growing. And I'm so grateful to all of you who support the channel through the Cash app, Tim Hatch Live, or timhatchlive.com slash support. Guys, it is an absolute pleasure to bring you this content. And like I said, if you are not subscribed, subscribe and click the notification bell because I'm probably somewhere around July, somewhere around the middle of July, not middle, end of July, going to do a deep end season six preview or channel season six preview. And you're not going to want to miss it. All this th stuff behind me, that's all going to go. Say goodbye to this set. Goodbye. Goodbye. We're going to redesign everything. Going to shift stuff. We already started talking about it. I'm so excited. I'll bring you fresh content, fresh videos, bumpers, and and some fresh content ideas. I uh, am praying about where to go with the scriptures. And I have this idea. Let me know in the comments what you think. I might be doing season six the Bible study portion of this channel, the deep, the deep dive, to be focused on the kings of Israel. Remember when we did Life of David in season four? Well, why don't we look at the kings after David? And you want to talk about avoided uh, Bible books. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Those are avoided Bible books because they're dark. Those dark, those days are dark. But there are incredible lessons from those books. So we might go into the kings. Uh, we might not. We'll see. Anyway, channel can't happen without you guys tuning in. So thank you so much. God bless you. I am off to rest, recuperate, and vacate with my family. I'll see you live again for somewhere around the third or fourth week of July. God bless you. Have a great night.